Now, early last year, I think it was, um, a few of us in the congregation, myself, one of our elders here, Gabriel, and his wife, what we did is we stopped what we were doing, we downed tools, and we headed off uh, to a Christian conference in the United States. So we headed off to a Christian conference in the, uh, the U.S. city of Orlando. Okay, now, it was a great couple of days. Uh, there was lots of uh, good fellowship, and there was uh, an awful lot of good and solid biblical uh, teaching. But to be honest with you, after the conference, I was left with one overarching impression, and that was that the conference had been far more diverse than I had been anticipating. You can you see what I mean? Like there was me uh, sort of jetting off, expecting a sort of thoroughly American experience, you know, uh, expecting lots of uh, American pastors speaking to uh, American people, and it was anything but that. You know, people from all of the all, all over the world were gathered there, and pastors from all over the world had been invited to speak. Now, that diversity sort of came to the fore. Uh, during one of these question and answer sessions towards the end of the conference. I don't know if you've ever been to a conference like this before. Maybe you have. But you know what it's like a question and answer session, don't you? You know, you get the main people, the big names up the front. And they are sort of discussing and taking questions from the floor. In this instance, uh, these men were discussing how different temperaments from different parts of the world, how that affects church life, how different temperaments, different parts of the world, how that affects church life. And at one point, one of the speakers, who was a Brazilian pastor, I I think, he said this, he said that in his opinion, that people from uh, South America, that they were much more laid back than anyone else. Now, he's saying that compared with people from the US or people from the United Kingdom, he was saying people from South America are much more chilled out and they're much more relaxed than anyone else. So I, d- I don't know what you think about that, whether you would agree with that. I maybe agree that, well, I maybe think that people from the United Kingdom, we could learn something from our uh, South American brothers and sisters about how to just chill out a little bit about things. Here's the deal. I don't want us to think about that today. That's not what we will think about this morning. Instead, what I want you and I to consider today is the nature of our spiritual temperament. Do you see what I mean? Should you and I as Christians, should we be spiritually laid back? Like When we consider our witness to those who are lost, when we consider our daily walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, is it okay for you and I just to be kind of chilled out about that? Just to be relaxed about these things? Or should something else come to the fore? Our spiritual temperament. And to think about that topic today, what we're going to do is we're going to turn back to God's word. We're going to turn to Esther chapter 8. And God willing, what we will see are three areas of necessary urgency for the Christian. 
Three areas of necessary urgency for you and for me in the Christian life. So, with these uh, introductory thoughts in our mind, this is what I would ask you to do. I would ask you to please uh, turn with me, to turn back uh, to page 506, if you're using the church Bible, to turn back to Esther chapter 8. And let's see, let's note first of all here, the urgency that we see in this chapter, the urgency in intercession. You got it? That's our first heading, the urgency in intercession that we see here. Okay. Um, This chapter, you'll know, begins with the spoils of victory, doesn't it? The spoils of victory, the spoils of war almost. Do you see what I mean? Uh, Do you remember what happened? Esther had seen her foe, the, the wicked enemy, Haman, killed, hadn't she? She'd seen him hanged from the gallows. And now having kind of disclosed to the king the full nature of her relationship with Mordecai, what happens? Do you see at the beginning? Both Esther and her cousin Mordecai, they're rewarded by the king, aren't they? Like Esther is granted the estate. Esther is honored by Xerxes. And what happens to Mordecai? He's brilliant, isn't it? What's happened to Mordecai? He's promoted at long last. And he takes Haman's place as second in command in the Persian Empire. Okay, so there's the spoils of victory, if you like. But what are you thinking? You're thinking, great, Haman's dead. We must be coming into the end of this this story. Is that what you're thinking? You kind of come to church and thinking, well, Esther chapter 8, wow, the credits must be about to roll and the heroes must be just about to ride off into the sunset. You're thinking, this must be the end. Haman's dead. I hope not. Because think about it. Okay, the evil person is dead. Haman's gone. He's dead. But what is still true? His evil plan is very much still in force. Do you see that? That the, although Haman is dead, the people of Israel right across the Persian Empire, they are still facing imminent death. They are facing imminent destruction. So do you see how we're supposed to approach this chapter 8? Like when we read in verse 3 of Esther again coming into the presence of the king, you and I are supposed to again be on the edge of our seat. We're supposed to be wondering, what's going to happen? Like, are these people, are they going to be delivered? Are they going to be saved or not? You see it? Big question still to be answered. So what does happen? What do we need to, to, to think about here? Well, I'll tell you this. The first real aspect that I want you to note here is the difference in the way that Esther carries herself in the king's presence. Like the difference in the way that she acts and holds herself before Xerxes here. I wonder if you see what I mean by that. Like a lot of you were here uh, for the start of this sermon series, weren't you? I know there's a few visitors in the congregation. Most of you were here for the start. Now do you remember, if you cast your mind back, do you remember how it was that Esther carried herself. Do you remember the first time that she entered into the presence of the king? 
You've got to remember that. I mean, that's one of the big moments in the book of Esther, wasn't it? Do you remember it? It's a huge moment. You know, remember her life was on the line. Do you remember this? She walks in to see the king. Now, you think about that. Actually, at that point, Esther was remarkably calm. Remember we noticed that? That Esther, at that point, even though her life was on the line, she was really collected about the whole thing. Like She took her time to go and see the king. She thought through exactly what she was going to say. She even took time. She was so calm and collected, so almost cold, that she dressed herself in a certain way. Do you remember? She put on her royal robes before going in to see the king. Do you remember this? Now, that's cold in some ways. You know, that's very calm. She's very collected. Now, you take that and you compare it with what you've got in front of you here. Look at verse 3. This time she goes in to see the king. And, 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 and what? it's totally different. Like, look what she's doing in verse 3. Look, as she approaches the king, what's happening? Do you see her? She's crying. There's tears running down her face. And then as she nears the king, look what she does. Is she composed? Is she calm? No, she falls at his feet. Do you see? And look what she cries out. Look at verse 6. Through the tears, she, she, she cries out. She, she declares her great, great love for her, her people. She calls her people her family. Do you see? It's so different from last time. Like gone is the composure. Gone is the, 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 the coldness, if you like, the calmness. In comes this, this incredible passion. This heartfelt plea for the salvation of her people, you see? Now friends, let me say this to you. Aren't we given in that the most beautiful illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work of intercession for you and for me? Now you must see what I mean by that. Like what is it as a Christian you know about Jesus work. You know, don't you, (laughs) that like Esther, the Lord Jesus Christ is our great mediator. That he is the one who does and who will intercede for you and for me. And you know this, that on the final day, on the day of judgment, That the Lord Jesus Christ will do what? That he will stand before the sovereign, won't he? And he will plead for us. Won't he? He will plead for all those who have trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sin. Now here's the thing. Wait a minute. What is it that we learn? What are we shown about that great mediatorial work in Esther 8? Do you see what it will be like? On that last day when your salvation hangs almost in the balance as it were you see that Christ will not intercede for you in a cold, in a disinterested way. Don't you see that Christ Jesus on those precious moments, those vital and crucial moments, he will make his appeal for you with a sincerity and with a passion that that flows out of his great, great love for you and for me and for all of his people. So we see here that there's a difference in the way that Esther carries herself. There's a passion, there's a care in the way that she appeals for her people. 
But I think we also need to notice the difference in the way that Esther speaks to the king. The actual words that she uses to the king here. We're familiar with um, repeated mantras and slogans, repeated lines, aren't we? Like just think about the American presidential race. Yeah. Just think about the American presidential race to see what I mean. Uh, it would seem from an outsider looking on that you're not allowed to run for office in the United States unless you can come up with a really good slogan. <laughs> Isn't that right? You know, either a really good slogan like, yes we can, or a more maybe questionable slogan like, oh, let's say, make America great Again, you see what I mean? Like a repeated line, a repeated slogan, repeated mantra almost. Now I wonder if you've noticed through this series that we see something like that all the way through the book of Esther. You notice that? That there is all the way through this book a repeated line. There's a repeated slogan almost. Do you see what I mean or not? Like every time that Esther has appeared before Xerxes, she said the same thing. Like whether she is asking for him to come to a banquet or she's asking him to save her or her people, she says the same thing. She says this. She says, if she's asking for something, she says, if what I'm asking for pleases the king, then grant this request. Do you see it? What's the basis of her request? It is, if this thing pleases the king, then grant it. Now I wonder, do you notice here in Esther 8 how she changes the basis of her request and appeal? Do you see it? Like she changes it here. She adds something very vital to how she asks for her people. Now do this with me and look at verse 5 to see what I'm talking about. See what she adds to the basis. What's the basis of her request? She says, okay, as we're expecting her to say, if it pleases the king... And what else? If he regards me, Esther, with favor. Now keep reading. She, she underlines this new basis of her request. She says, if it pleases the king and if he is pleased with whom? Free the people if he's pleased with me. Now, do you see what is going on here? More than it, any other place in this whole entire book. Here, Esther is appealing for her people based not on the whim of a king and based not on who her people are. What's it based on? She's appealing for her people based on who Esther is in herself. Now, are you with me or not? Is this crucial? It is not, Xerxes, save the Jews because they deserve it. And it's not Xerxes, well, you save the Jews because they've worked really hard in slavery. What is it? It is save the Jews, my king, based on your love for me. Based on your relationship with me. I'm sitting here this morning, surely you see again an illustration of the Lord Christ and his intercession. Because let me ask you this, and you think about it carefully. On the last day, when we stand on the threshold of glory, at the judgment, 
Upon what will Christ's intercession for your soul be based? I mean, what will be the basis of Christ's appeal for you? Do you see it? Like here with Esther, Christ is not going to appeal for you based on who you are. And his meditorial work is not going to be based on the things that you've done. And it's not going to be based on how hard you've worked throughout your life. What's it going to be based upon? His appeal, his meditorial work will entirely be based on who he is. And his relationship with God. And I long for you to see what that... (laughs) I long for you to see what that means. Do you see what it means? It means that if you're a Christian this morning, your salvation is without a doubt. It means that your salvation is sure and it's certain. Why? Because its basis, it is founded in what? Entirely in the favor that the Father finds in his very own Son. It's sure. But before we move on, There's something else I'm sure you're thinking about. And there's something else that we see in Esther and the way that she carries herself before the king. I wonder if you're thinking like this. Don't you see here an illustration of how our own intercession must be? Aren't you thinking that? Like, don't you read of Esther appealing, uh, standing before the king and appealing in the way she does and Aren't you thinking of, we are showing a picture of how you and I must pray. See, isn't this true? That uh, often when we pray, even as Christians, that our prayers are cold. See if that rings a bell with you. And our prayers are sometimes unconcerned, almost, you know. If we pray, if we pray, often we pray in a way that is disjointed, don't we? And distracted, isn't that the case? And sometimes the worst of the lot, don't we pray? And sometimes we pray and it's almost disinterested. And aren't we shown in Esther chapter 8 how it is that you and I should look when we pray? Friends, do you see it? You and I should resemble the queen of Persia. We should look like Esther. When we pray, we too, when we pray, should fall on our knees before the king. You and I should have tears running down our cheeks, tears of sincerity and care. You and I, when we pray, we should be appearing before the king and pleading with him for the deliverance of those around us. But I'm asking you, does that sound like the way that you pray? Does that sound like I pray. Is there urgency in our prayer lives? I ask you that this morning. If not, I tell you what I think we should do. As a congregation, even just now, silently, we should ask God to infuse our prayers with urgency. And you see why, don't you? Without that sort of heartfelt sincerity in intercession, you and I as Christians are just wasting our time until we die. Another thing that we see here is not just urgency and intercession. We also see here urgency 
in distributing a message. Urgency in distributing a message. So you get the scene, don't you? Esther comes into the presence of the king and, and she asks him to, to, to oh, please deliver these people. And he agrees. But there's a problem. Remember what we said about the laws of the Medes and Persians? The laws cannot just be revoked, can they? Like Xerxes here, he can't just say, okay, let's scrap Haman's decree. He can't just say, right, everyone, shh, just forget that that decree ever happened. Can't do that. What he has to do by law is he has to write another decree. Do you see it? That overwrites the first So he has to write a second decree into law, enshrine it in law, that allows the Jewish people to defend themselves on this coming day of destruction. I just want to draw your attention a couple of aspects of this new decree. First of all, just think about how similar the language is of the two decrees. Similar language used. But I'll tell you what I mean. Um, Every Monday, without fail, it's every Monday morning, without fail, my daughter Ellie Rose is asked by her school teacher to write about what she's been up to at the weekend. Okay, I'm pretty sure if we went round the room, pretty much everyone was like, oh, that rings a bell. I was asked to do that in school as well. You know, when we're about, you know, five or six, you go into school and you're asked, oh, write a few lines about what you've done over the weekend. Now, come Monday evening, Ellie Rose will come back from school and she will tell me exactly what she's written about the weekend. And I will stand and I will listen to her. And here's the thing, it all, all sounds so incredibly familiar to me. Uh, why? Because my son, Colin, about this time last year, was asked to do exactly the same thing. And the pair of them always write about exactly the same stuff. So every week it will be on Saturday we went to the park. <laughs> on Sunday we went to church. And then they both write in incredible detail about exactly what they had for their Sunday lunch. <laughs> okay. So you see what I'm getting at. Or maybe you see what I'm trying to say. Like Ellie Rose will tell me this, and it will sound so incredibly familiar. All the bells will ring. Why? Because the language is familiar. Now, you see where I am when I'm under evening? That's where you should be right now. As you read of the second decree here, it should sound incredibly familiar to you. And all the bells should be ringing. Why? Because the language of the second decree is almost exactly word for word the same as the first decree. And this is important, so let me show you. And when I say this, see if it rings any bells from that earlier first decree of Haman. Now notice the second decree is also, verse 8, stamped with a signet ring, just as the first decree was. Then verse 9, this decree, I wonder if you remember this. It's to be sent from India to Kush. Okay, it's also a decree written in the languages of all of the provinces. Phrasing's all exactly the same as the first time round. Verse 12, you're, you're bound to remember this. 
This decree is to be issued on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Edar. Is it ringing a bell? Like if you've been here for this series, are you sort of thinking, no, right enough, that is the same freezing as of the first decree. Do you see, is it ringing any bells? Is it familiar? Do you see why? Do you see the point? We're supposed to see that this second decree, it is a full and complete and entire reversal of the first decree. We're supposed to listen to this language and see, ah, yes, no element of Haman's wicked plan still remains. We're supposed to see, yes, these people, they now have a chance of a full and a complete deliverance and a deliverance from death. Do you see it? We're supposed to see the similarity in language. Then there's a second element with this decree, which is, I think, even more important. And it is to notice the urgency with which this decree is to be taken out across the land. And if you're going to notice this, I want you just to follow me. And I'm going to read out a couple of verses. And I do ask you just to look and see. And just to think and notice the urgency. Now think about the scene. This plan of salvation for the people has just been drummed up by Xerxes and Esther and Mordecai. Here's this plan of salvation. What will we do with this plan? Verse 9. First two words. Look. Do you see it? Once the royal secretaries were summoned to get this plan of salvation, get it, get it down on paper, then look at the end of verse 10. Now see if you see the urgency in the end of verse 10. How did they send out this plan? Do they get couriers involved in this plan? Well, yeah, but what sort of couriers? Get them on horses! You see the haste-mounted couriers. Keep reading. Keep reading. that. Look, what do the couriers ride? Do you see it? They rode fast horses. And not just fast horses, look. Horses that were especially bred for their speed for the king. And then the last one, this is great. Look at verse 14. Look at this. Verse 14. Couriers riding out on these royal horses. How did they go out? Did they trot? (laughs) Did they gallop? What did they do? They raced out. They're spurred on by the king's command. Uh, I'm asking you, do you get a sense of the panic that seems to have uh, pervaded the royal household. Like, do you get a sense of the incredible urgency here? Do you? They raced out. Why was it like that? Don't you see? It was because this day of destruction, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, it was fast approaching. And there was people everywhere. And they, they were soon to die. You see, this word, it had to get out right across the Persian Empire. And it had to get out fast. Time was running out. And friends, it surely does not take a genius to see the application for you and I and for the church today. Do you see it? Friends, is this not true? That the coming day of judgment, that it is not affecting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ the way that it should. The coming day of judgment is not affecting us as it should. You see, think about Esther 8. We're in the same position. 
Like for us too, time is moving ever so quickly and it's moving to this point when what is going to happen, many of the people that you know and that I know and many of the people in your families and many of your beloved friends, they are going to face on that day spiritual death. Isn't that right? Like time is moving so fast towards this day of destruction. What does God tell us in Acts 17? That the Lord has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. Do you see the sense? Do you see the fact that the the clock is ticking? Do you see the sense of urgency there? But is there any, any good news at all? There is. That like here, there is a message of hope. Isn't there? Not a message that that tells people that they can defend themselves on that day. No, it's better than that. It is a message of full and complete and entire reversal from judgment. In and off and because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he alone. So I've got a question for you. If Esther chapter 8 stands as a picture of the urgency of the gospel, which it does, then which role do we play in this scene? Who are you in Esther 8? Mordecai? Esther? Xerxes? No. You see who we are in this room? We are supposed to be The mounted couriers. We are the people who have been equipped, whether we like it or not, and we have been chosen by the king and chosen to go out into the whole empire with this message of hope. And so surely you see how terrible a thing it is if we are spiritually laid back and chilled out. You see it? I mean, time is ticking on and people are facing soon eternal damnation. So friends, surely to our request for an urgency in prayer, there's another thing that we must do just now. We must ask God for renewed urgency in our witness. Isn't that right? That we must pray, we should pray That we, the church of Jesus Christ, see very clearly the haste with which the good, glorious message of the gospel must go out and across this land. And then we'll close these things with the third sense of urgency. We see also the urgency of joy. Urgency of joy. All right. Okay, as we come at land, uh, as it were, I've got a test for you, a test question, only for those who have been here for the entire duration of this sermon series. Can you remember how it was that Mordecai was dressed when he heard about the first decree? I heard somebody mutter it under their breath, which is good. Uh, do you remember? Mordecai, the Jew, he hears about the imminent destruction of all of his people. He strips off and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. And he weeps at the king's gate. Now, compare that with Mordecai here. Look at verse 15. 
Look at the complete reversal. Verse 15, now in light of the second decree, he stands in royal robes, he stands in finery, and he's a crown upon his head. You see the reversal that God has brought about for his people, do you? And it ain't just Mordecai, is it? Do you remember what happened in the citadel of Susa? When they heard about Haman's plan. Do you remember what happened? The citadel, the whole of the city, we were told specifically, was thrown into great confusion. Verse 15. What happens here? Look at it. The citadel of Susa is now holding a party. You know, they are celebrating in light of this second decree. And the Jews, the Jews in particular, They are rejoicing this day. Do you see it? There is this complete reversal for the people of God. Now, here it is how I want to close. If you are thinking about Esther 8 biblically, and if you are thinking ahead from Esther chapter 8, what event would you say is being anticipated in these verses? Now, do you see the nature of the question that I'm asking you? Like when you see this picture of a people standing with their deliverer, and they are delighting in their situation, and they are (laughs) celebrating at that time, what event comes to mind? What do you think of from that picture? Do you say... Well, I think of the second coming of my Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what you think? Do you think surely it is the return of Jesus? When we will, the people of God, stand with our Lord. And we will rejoice and we shall celebrate and celebrate forevermore. Is that what you're thinking? Is that what comes to mind here from Esther chapter 8? What can I say to you? It's not that. It cannot be that. See, think about this. The people of God here, they are not rejoicing because of a full experience of deliverance. Do you see what I mean? Like the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, it still lies ahead of them as they celebrate They are not celebrating and rejoicing here because of a present, just now, if you like, experience and realization of their salvation. No! Why are they celebrating? They are celebrating because they have in their hands a decree. They are celebrating because they have a promise from their king of a future deliverance. They have in their hands a promise from their king of a sure and certain later future salvation. And it's that that brings them joy. So I ask my question again. To where does this picture of celebration point? What event, what moment do you think it anticipates? Can I tell you? We are being shown by Esther chapter 8. How you and I should be right now. We are being shown by Esther chapter 8. 
how you and I should be on the 2nd of October 2016. And you see what I mean, do you not? That because yeah, we have in our hands today a decree of salvation that has been stamped by our King. That because our Savior, through His Holy Spirit, He stands amongst us today, dressed in the finery of resurrection life. Because we have this sure promise of salvation. You and I today, the people of God, we should celebrate, we should be utterly rejoicing in the certainty of our coming deliverance. And I ask you to think about that as you leave this church building, as you go home today. You think about the pressing need there is for the people of God to rejoice. Don't you see what a witness it would be to the world? If they could look on at Christians, if they could look on at churches and see us rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing in the sure knowledge that there's a coming day when we will be, we will be entirely saved, free from sin. This is the last word. How can I preach a sermon on urgency and not speak to those here who who are outside of Jesus? Friend, is that you? Is that where you stand? Is there, this is... This is new to you, that you don't know Christ, you don't have a relationship with Christ. Well, listen to these, these last words. This stuff isn't made up. That there is a coming day when every single person in here, in every single chair, we are going to be judged. And there's a time approaching when those people who do not know Jesus Christ are going to realize one thing. They're going to stand before God and they're going to see what they do not have. They do not have a mediator. They do not have an advocate. And all they have, they will see it, they will realize, all they have is condemnation from God at sin. Friend, is that you this morning? Then I'm saying to you, use the time that you have this morning to seek the only deliverer that there is from sin. To seek with all your heart and with all your soul, all your mind, all, everything that you are. Seek the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, do you know what you can do? Then when you've done that, you can join us, the people of God this morning. As, as we do what? What do we do today? We surely, we celebrate in anticipation of the time where you and I are going to see Jesus and we shall be surely forever free from sin. Let's pray.